morning to you. It's just a joy to be with you. Thank you so much for the invitation to come and open God's Word. It is rather strange for me because I retired last Sunday. Uh, so it does say in Ecclesiastes that there's no discharge from the army in time of war. And I'm fairly confident that peace isn't about to be declared. So uh, it just means then making ourselves available to the Lord to do whatever he desires us to do. And that's what my wife and I are planning to, to do in the days, months and years if the Lord spares us. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 18. I'm going to read a parable, verse 9 to the end of verse 14. Uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 9 down to the end of verse 14. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his own breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For, not, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And we do pray that God will uh, bless the reading of his word together. Why don't we just take a moment to ask God to help us. Lord, we thank you so much that you've given us your precious word. Sometimes we read it and we can understand it. And at other times, oh Lord, we read it and we're not very sure what it means for us today. But we do pray that as we look at it this morning, that you would come and grab hold of our minds and our hearts. And allow us to catch a glimpse of you that would enthrall us. That we would be utterly amazed at your great and gracious character. Please break it into very small pieces, Lord. We ask it as we give thanks in the precious and the lovely name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. I thought I'd start by asking you a question, because a little bit of help would be uh, much appreciated. If, if you were to receive justice, what would you be receiving? If you were to be receiving justice, what would you receive? What you deserve. Absolutely right. So some of you are, are ahead of me. So you will have uh, come across that saying, justice is getting what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we do not deserve. You have to think about that. Or it gets kind of muddled up in your mind. So in order to really embed it in our thinking, why don't we say it together a couple of times? So it's back to Sunday school for all of us. One, two, three. Justice is getting what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we do not deserve. Now, did you stumble on that a little bit? Because I, I did. So let's do it again. Justice is getting what we deserve. 
Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we do not deserve. Now, if you can get that into your head and hang on to it, it'll be a great help, not just today, but in the coming days, I'm sure. Now, grace is absolutely wonderful. I can remember when I was at college in the last millennium, we were told that if you preach on grace, on how good grace is, and if nobody comes to you and says, it can't be that good, then you haven't preached it right. So grace is so good that we can't really get our heads around it. Augustus top lady, the uh, hymn writer, said, grace finds us beggars but leaves us debtors. Grace finds us beggars but leaves us debtors. And then um, John Newton said, I am not what I might be. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. But I thank God I am not what I once was. And I can say with a great apostle, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And God's grace is the most wonderful subject to think about. We, we, need, we need grace in order to grab hold of gospel truth. It takes grace for us to understand that the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin from which God saves us. It, it takes grace to grab hold of that truth. I can remember a time when I read the Bible before I became a Christian. It was like reading the telephone directory. It really wasn't very interesting. But then God gave grace, and I began to understand something of the wonder of the gospel. Now we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses, verses 8 and 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So it takes grace for us to come to an understanding of what this good news of the gospel is. It takes grace to bring us to faith in Jesus. But please understand that having come to believe in Jesus, we don't leave grace behind. Grace is both our present need as well as our past experience. The gospel of grace is not just the way into the Christian life, it is also the way on in the Christian life. So we need grace every single day. Remember 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9? He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Grace, this grace was given to us. And the truth is, you and I, we never outgrow our need for grace because every single day, even the best of us struggles with sin. Isn't that right? And if you don't admit to it, then you're struggling with telling the truth. So you really need grace. We all need grace every single day. Now we read this parable and when you read a parable, it's a very good thing to say, well, where do I fit into this parable? What's it about? Because there is a truth contained there for us today. You know that a, a parable is a, a, um, an earthly story 
with a spiritual meaning. Well, the context of the parable is very interesting. Uh, Luke 18, verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. So there were people there and they thought that, you know, we really are quite good. We're probably better than other people. And as a result, they looked down on other people. Now, very occasionally, we're tempted to go that road. But we're very selective. We compare ourselves with people whom we know are definitely not as upright and moral as we are. We compare ourselves with rascals, because that makes us feel good. And there were people like that around Jesus. People who were so confident in their own goodness that they looked down on everybody else. And Jesus taught this parable to such folks because he wanted them to understand some wonderful truth. It's a story for people who need grace, for people who really don't see themselves as desperately wicked sinners. The story opens up with a surprise because in those days everyone knew that the tax collectors wouldn't have gone to the temple to pray. Tax collectors were employed by the Roman government and thus were considered to be traitors to the Jewish people. Many practiced extortion. So one preacher has described the tax collectors of Jesus' day as the drug pushers and pimps who prey on society and who made a living from stealing from others. Make no mistake, the, the tax collector uh, was a, an absolute crook. But the Pharisee, on the other hand, uh, stood for everything that was right and good. The Pharisees were regarded as spiritual overachievers. You know, folks who were, went around with their heads slightly to one side, uh, carrying large uh, religious books under their arms. So everybody's really impressed by these Pharisees. They really looked the real deal. Regarded as spiritual overachievers, they were theologically orthodox and morally devout. And possibly our respect for this particular Pharisee increases when we listen to the prayer that he prayed. Because he comes before God with thanksgiving and he testifies that he's not an extortioner. He doesn't rob from anybody. He's not an adulterer. He doesn't take money from, for himself. He gives money away to others. And he not only prays, he's... He fasts as well. In other words, the Pharisee was the kind of man that we would look up to. We would be impressed by this Pharisee. And yet, for all his devotion, this man was not righteous, was not good in God's sight. How do we know that? Well, his prayer was very self-focused. Although he started by addressing God, he actually is taken up with himself. Now, look at what he actually prays. The Pharisee stood and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. And when I counted that through, that personal pronoun, I, appears five times. So his prayer was... About himself, wasn't it? He prayed about himself. But it actually gets worse. Because if you look in your Bible, 
you'll probably see that there's a little note in the margin against verse 11. And it says he prayed uh, about himself. Well, actually, it's literally translated, he prayed to himself. Now, isn't that extraordinary? He comes to God, and not only does he pray about himself, God, I fast twice a week, or whatever it is, as though God didn't know. But he's actually, according to the literal translation, he's praying to himself. He didn't ask God for anything or even begin to praise God. He simply reveled in the sense of his own goodness. Imagine that. Coming before a great and a holy God and concentrating not on God, but on himself. That's what he did. Spurgeon said, Here is a man who thought he was too good to be saved. And that's not a very good attitude at all, is it? So you have this Pharisee. And then we have to ask the question, well, if Jesus taught about a Pharisee, and this was the point of the parable, could there be any sense in which we're ever like a Pharisee? I mean, do, do we relate to the Pharisee? Well, perhaps we do in ways that we don't always think about. I'm a Pharisee when I care a little bit more about my religious reputation than I care about my personal holiness. When I'm really concerned what other people think about me. But I'm more concerned about that than I am about my own holiness. I'm a Pharisee when I look down on people who are not quite as committed as I am to the things that I am committed to. I'm a Pharisee when I look around and I say, thank you God, I'm not like that old fellow down the back, Lord, who's just about to know. Thank you God, I'm not like him. That makes me a Pharisee. When else am I a Pharisee? I'm a Pharisee when I'm impressed by how much I'm giving to God compared to others. I'm a Pharisee when other people's sin seems worse than mine. And yet the truth is we're so selective when it comes to looking at our own sin we tend to think that somehow God is going to treat us differently to everybody else. And yet, it's repeated in the New Testament several times, just in case we don't miss it, that God has no favorites. And yet, we're kinder to ourselves than we are to other people. And I'm a Pharisee when I go all day or all week or even all month without ever once confessing a sin. And this Pharisee prayed... But I don't think his prayer got higher than the ceiling. He prayed to himself about himself. You see, I think there is another way to pray. Look at verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And there's three parts to his prayer. He prays God. He prays the sinner. And then there's the mercy, merciful grace that comes between them. He, he approached, but notice he stood at a distance. Why? Maybe he had a sense of his own sinfulness. And a sense of the awesome holiness of God. He, he didn't look up. Maybe because he didn't think he was worthy of looking up to God. 
and he beat his breast. And I guess that was just a, a, a sense of sorrow and pain within that he wasn't what he ought to be. He had a right and proper fear of God's burning holiness. And his prayer begins with God and ends with himself. And that's probably a good way to pray. And actually, the Greek is a little bit different from the English there. He says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. But literally, it's God have mercy on me, the sinner. You see, when we say, God have mercy on me, a sinner, I'm just one of a number of sinners. But he doesn't come like that. He comes and says, God have mercy on me, the sinner. The sinner. You see, in the parable, he's not comparing himself with anybody else. He doesn't measure himself against someone who wasn't quite as good as he was, which is what I like to do, and I suspect you do too, because that's the way we're wired up. He measured himself not against his peers. He measured himself against the perfect holiness of God, and he saw himself for what he was, just a a guilty sinner before a holy God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that lovely man who was executed in Flossenburg concentration camp in 1945, said, and I quote, If my sinfulness appears to me to be in any way smaller or less detestable in comparison with the sins of others, I'm still not recognizing my sinfulness at all. Do we recognize our sinfulness? It's unpopular to preach about sin today. But the truth is that God is holy and without exception. We each one sin. And until we really grab hold of that, the grace of God won't appear to us to be as wonderful as it really is. Maybe when we pray, we could beginning, begin by praying, Lord, it's me, the sinner. The tax collector prayed for mercy. He prayed for mercy. God, have mercy on me. Now, justice is when we get what we deserve. Mercy is when we... Do you remember? Mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve. So he he prays for mercy. God, please don't give me what I deserve because he knew that what he deserved was judgment. But actually there's something wonderful wrapped up in this verse that isn't immediately apparent. What he's actually asking is is really interesting. You see, what he's asking points towards a blood sacrifice. It points towards a blood sacrifice. So what's that all about? Well, to understand that, we need to go back into the Old Testament to Leviticus chapter 16. And in Leviticus chapter 16, it tells us that once a year, the high priest would make atonement. He would make an offering for the people's sin. And how did he do that? Well, he would take a perfect male goat and he would sacrifice it as a sin offering. He would kill it. Now, you just take, hold that thought for a moment. You remember right back in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned? And they hid from God because they knew they'd done wrong. And God came into the garden and in the cool of the evening walked around and Adam and Eve weren't there. So God said, where are you, Adam? Of course, God knew where Adam was. He said, well, I'm here, Lord. 
But he was hiding in the bushes because he knew he was naked. And he'd made this covering of fig, fig leaves. I don't know if you've ever seen a fig leaf, but it's really hard to work on how you'd actually make an adequate covering from fig leaves because the shape of them is quite extraordinary. Anyway, God provided him with, with skins, didn't he? Where did he get the skins? Did he, did he not have to kill an animal? In other words, blood had to be shed to provide a covering for Adam and Eve's nakedness. That was the first sacrifice that we read of in the Bible. So back to Leviticus 16, that the people had sinned and the high priest would sacrifice a goat um, and he would take the blood that was sacrificed uh, into the most holy place in the temple and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And what did this priestly act signify? Well, the sacrificial goat represented God's sinful people. And in a symbolic way, their sins were transferred or imputed to the animal. And then having been charged with a sin, the animal was put to death. So the, the goat died as a substitute, dying in the place of sinners. And once the sacrifice had been offered, the animal's blood was proof that the atonement that the sacrifice had been made for sin. The sacrificial blood showed that God had already carried out the death penalty against the sin. So the priest took the blood and sprinkled it on the mercy seat. Now, now you'll know a little bit, I'm sure, about the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant in which the law was kept. Well, the Ark of the Covenant was located in the Holy of Holies, the innermost part of the, of the tent, temple. And on top of the mercy seat, there were golden cherubim. And, and you can see them there. They, they symbolize um, the throne of God. And the Ark served as the earthly location for God's holy presence. And inside the ark, underneath the mercy seat, was the law of God, a covenant that the people had broken. So by sprinkling blood on the mercy seat, that was a way to show that the sacrifice, the life that had been offered, had come between a holy God and his sinful people. The sacrificial blood showed that their sins were covered and that they were now protected from the anger, judgment, and the wrath of a holy God. So we have the mercy seat. And in, a, in effect, the tax collector, who wouldn't draw near to God because he had a sense of his own sinfulness, was asking God for a blood atonement. He begged God to atone for his sins, to cover his guilt, and to protect him from judgment. Because it was something that he couldn't manage on his own. God needed to do it. And it was a good prayer to pray. The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not, would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, the sinner. And you know, when we are praying that prayer, we are praying the gospel. Jesus became the sacrifice, willingly shedding his blood. And he died in my place. And he died 
in your place too. His cross is our mercy seat. And the blood he sprinkled on it stands between us and God's judgment. 1 Peter chapter 2 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And Jesus taught this parable to folks who thought that they were righteous. But he taught the parable to them so that they might understand that none of us is righteous. And we come like the tax collector in desperate need of help. Our sin is covered and our guilt is taken away. Two men, two men went up to the temple to pray. Two folks came to Hamilton Baptist to worship on a Sunday morning. Both of these men prayed, but their prayers were not the same. They were different. And the outcomes were different too. As a result, the tax collector went home justified. He had received forgiveness. But the Pharisee, despite declaring his own righteousness, he didn't receive forgiveness. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. His prayer was all about the things he did for God. And he didn't have any understanding of the things that God had done for him. And his prayer was not what God wanted. What God wanted was a prayer like the prayer of the tax collector. The tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What's absolutely amazing to me as I read that It's very personal. I look back into my own life before I became a Christian. I wouldn't dream of telling you some of the stuff I got up to because it would embarrass me and it wouldn't glorify God. And yet God in his mercy and grace reached out and touched my life. My mother was convinced that I would not survive very long, that I would end up as an alcoholic or in prison or something for Various things that I got up to. But God reaches out. And in grace touches our lives. And he gives us not only mercy. He gives us grace. And grace is when he gives us what we don't deserve. And what do we not deserve? None of us deserves forgiveness. Sometimes I I used to challenge the young people in Finlay, to go to their bedrooms, to close the curtains, turn off the lights, and to put the duvet over their head, and to stay there for half an hour, and to rigorously take a note of any thought that they shouldn't be thinking. And when you do that, you can't go for half an hour without thinking uh, thoughts that you shouldn't be thinking. We sometimes would say that if you had a television screen inset into your forehead, 
which showed in glorious technicolor what was going on in your thought life, uh, you'd be so embarrassed, you'd comb your hair forward. And if you didn't have hair, you'd go and get hair. Just to cover it up, because you wouldn't want people to know what was going on. But our God knows everything. He knows what's going on in our hearts right now. And he knows just who in that parable we identify with. Whether we identify with the Pharisee because we've been going to church for years and we're very respectable. God deliver us from respectability. But he knows too that maybe some of us need him and need his grace. But the wonder of wonders has this, is this, this God of glory looks down upon people like us and he loves us. And his heart's desire is to pour out on our lives what we don't deserve, which is grace. Justice is when we get what we deserve. Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. But grace is when we do get what we don't deserve. And for, for those of us who know him and, and love him, we have the confidence as the man, the tax collector in the parable had confidence. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Isn't it good to know that by God's grace, when we shuffle off this mortal coil, we're going to go home. One final thing before we finish. Some time ago, somebody told me about a website on the internet. It's called The Death Clock. And you can go on to the internet, you can go onto that website, The Death Clock, and it asks you whether you're male or female, how old you are, a little bit about your medical history, about your family's history, and then it works it all out. It tells you when you're going to die. Of course, it's not true. It tells you when you're going to die. And, and you look at this clock on your computer screen and you watch the minutes ticking down. It's quite unsettling. It really is. But it serves to remind us that we're only ever one heartbeat away from eternity. And if you haven't received the grace of God, you need to. And you can simply receive it this morning by praying the prayer that the tax collector prayed, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and praise you for the extraordinary love that you pour down upon us every single day. We praise you that regardless of what we think of ourselves or what others think about us, you look down upon us and we are special in your eyes. We thank you so much that the psalmist said you have delivered me because you have delighted in me. And the thought, O oh Lord, that you who are so awesome and high and holy and majestic and glorious, that you would ever delight in people like us, is just extraordinary. But we thank you for your grace. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would lock your truth into our hearts. 
and help us so that we might be folks who follow you. We ask it, Father, in the precious and lovely name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.